This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, dodging the pulpit, preachiness in speculative fiction and how to avoid it. I am so amused by the idea of dodging a pulpit. Like <laughs> like it's to... going to block your way in an alley and you're like, oh God! <laughs> They've escaped from the churches. Vicious pulpits. <laughs> They're on the attack. It's like the walking dead. Yeah. the walking pulpit. It's just pulpits. <laughs> they will coral you and make you grandstand. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. No, not one of my my better sci-fi ideas. But. I don't know. I feel like Stephen King could make it work, um, and I feel like you could make it work. I think it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> now, um, this episode is brought to you once again by Jules Reading. Yeah, sorry guys, keep doing it. <laughs> um, and I believe that actually this episode is is the culmination of about three months worth of. <laughs> building anger is that accurate to say uh brooding brooding is definitely the word um i read imaginary friend by stephen chbotsky who wrote the perks of being a wallflower so i don't know if he's written anything else but these two books but it's two completely different things perks of being a wallflower um young adult fiction and about 250 to 300 pages. Very slender volume. Read it in one sitting. Yeah. Imaginary Friend is nearly 800 pages. It's a Stephen King-worthy chonker. Right. And it's very definitely horror. Mm-hmm. And you start off with... Um, there's there's a prologue where a, a little boy is trying to escape uh, through the dark streets from the hissing woman. Oof. So it's kind of gothic and a little bit... And it, it, it's a genuinely moody piece at the beginning of this book and then you cut to the present day and it's another little boy and his mother who are moving to yet another new town where she is trying to find a job and a place for them to live and they're struggling financially and there's all sorts of other stuff going on as well yeah um the little boy's not very smart he's um struggling in school and things mm-hmm. and then he starts talking to this imaginary friend in the woods behind their house right always a good and start he starts <laughs> getting cleverer spookily cleverer it's re- and you're like okay i'm kind of hooked this is i don't i genuinely don't know where this is going um now i don't actually want to spoil this for anyone because the first 500 pages or so mm-hmm. uh a kind of a really good bog standardy type horror story that's a bit King-esque. Okay. That you might enjoy. Um, but I have to say the ending, for me personally, left a lot to be desired. Um, and that, that's what sparked this entire thing. Now, uh, I'll talk about sort of um, Christian fiction and stuff a bit later. But basically, it felt by the time I got to the end of the book that I had read a 700-page prologue to a sermon god okay and the last hundred pages were very much ham like literally like someone had a mallet and was hammering the idea home and i was i and there were a few things that i actively hated the direction the author went in um but that i I acknowledge that some of that is me having a knee-jerk reaction to the very christian overtones right um but some of it was just a case of 
you could have left this ambiguous and it would have been a better story. In fact, you could have cut out 300 pages and it would have been a better story, <laughs> um, which is always kind of a bugbear. But this was very definitely, I, f I genuinely felt like I had been tricked. I felt like I'd been offered a horror story and a horror by its very nature engages with shades of grey and the the dark creases in the human soul, the shades of morality and things. Yeah. It does all of that anyway. Um, even if you want to tell a horror story that does have Christian overtones, for example, Stephen King's The Stand, which is very much a dark tale of Christianity, mm. where he's positing what if the biblical God is real and what if his opposite number is also real and what if they decide to, to see who inherits the earth kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that's fine. Good with that. That's one of my favourite books ever. But this was very definitely, no, this is this is how it ends. This is the morality. This is the only thing you can you can do. This is what you must think, I think is the thing. And I'm just like, that book is preached to me and I'm not okay with it. And I'm not okay with the fact that the first sort of 600 pages was four stars and the last chunk was about half a star kind of thing. <laughs> oh, I'm dear. not okay I'm not happy uh, I, I genuinely felt cheated and it's just sort of played on the back of my mind I was saying to Madeline before we got started on this episode that I thought it was going to be difficult putting notes together for this episode mm. and then they just came out they came out in a rush and I'm like okay so I've just been brooding about this for three months <laughs> this so has that's been where this on your come mind <laughs> yeah so um so there we go this isn't just me about this isn't about me slagging off the book because I did still enjoy most of the book. That's the thing that annoys me. Yeah. Um, but it did get me thinking about preachiness in general. And, you know, preachiness in a story is generally one of those things that gives me a knee jerk. I'm not reading any more reaction. Yeah. And in fact, it will do that to most people because it's not just clumsy storytelling. Preachiness causes a genuine feedback loop known as reactance. So, you know, when somebody says something to you in an argument, it tells you that's how you must think. Yeah. And, and then and then if, you go, well, I don't want to do that now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you adopt the opposite position, even <laughs> if you don't entirely agree with it. Yes. Yeah, that that's a perfectly natural thing to do because we as humans absolutely hate being told what to think and what to do. So we immediately dig our heels in. And if you think about it, that's a good survival trait because until you know the information you're being given is valuable and correct, mm. um, the you know the, the 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 caveman from the other cave might actually be telling you something that will lead to you running off the edge of a cliff, kind of thing. Yeah, so <laughs> that's where it comes from. <laughs> So yes, if you push your views on somebody, chances are they will adopt the opposite position to you. Yeah. Um, and it's quite an interesting thing because, it, well, we'll go into a little bit more detail about the fact that you, you then start to get very typical kind of fiction where it is quite preachy and the people who agree, who you know, the, the converted uh, yeah. will will hail it as an excellent book. Um without and 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 then get very angry with people who go i didn't enjoy it yeah uh, and i that's absolutely a thing um anyway let's go on to what we actually mean by preachiness because i think it will surprise most people and actually i kind of surprised myself when i mm. really stopped to think about it that preachiness exists you know across the board in everything it can exist in any genre at yeah. all whatsoever so, you know, it's not automatically about religious beliefs being included in a story. There's yeah. plenty of genuine designated Christian fiction. It's marketed as Christian fiction. 
that isn't preachy yeah at all yeah and i've i've read and enjoyed quite a lot of them, like the rivers of time series it's like okay you're very focused on a christian morality system here you're very focused on no sex before marriage etc which i you know the myth of virginity which i don't agree with at all but you haven't shoved it in my face you've just started from the position of this is what this family believes yeah and then giving me a time travel adventure and i'm like yeah I'm like, i can still enjoy that that's fine yeah so preachiness is when the author handles the theme of their book in a very heavy-handed way so um essentially if the reader feels constantly clubbed over the head with something that is clearly a dearly held author belief that's preachy storytelling yeah big time um and as we've just said it can exist in any genre i was thinking about this and you know i i hesitate to raise sarah j mass but some of her stuff actually comes across as quite preachy possibly because she delivers it in a repetitive manner Mm. yeah and i I don't actually disagree necessarily with what she's saying when she's being preachy it's just because of the way she's saying it it kind of makes me go hang on a minute are you actually right yeah and it's one of those interesting things where um i think to a certain extent everybody who writes with certain with an agenda or um you know who has certain beliefs these things are going to bleed into a book and there and there's going to be different people who can you know stand different levels of it for example uh someone including a gay character in their book or their series um for some people they'll say oh you're being preachy you're just forcing this onto me um and so some people will, will, it'll be different levels. So you obviously, you, you can't please everybody. There's always going to be someone who's going to be annoyed and feel like, oh, I'm being preached at, I'm trying to be, etc. Which is which is why I think a lot of people get so weirdly angry about stuff like that. Um, but you can basically think about the average reader. Um, and about sort of well also your your ideal reader who are you writing for and are you being a bit heavy-handed for them yeah absolutely uh i mean we as we as you've just said your mileage may vary with preachiness i've seen people describe uh trudy canavan's black magician trilogy as preachy and Kristen cashel's graceling series as preachy mm. neither of those strike me as preachy yeah even though you know, you've got both of them looking at things like um, gender differences in terms of of pay and um, poverty and things like that. That doesn't strike me as preachy. That just strikes me as this is a story about that and it's woven into the story. But yeah. if someone was offended by those ideas already, mm-hmm. then yeah, maybe. Yeah. So you're, you're right. Um, and it's kind of a thing where I see... The tone, the tone of preachiness isn't in a lot of young adult fiction at the moment. And the reason I think it comes out there is because young adult fiction is kind of a testing ground for lots of new ideas and things which then go on into mainstream sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. And the problem is some of the young adult authors who put things in um, kind of write diversity first rather than character first. So the first thing that hits a reader in the face is this is a gay character. And then sometimes they don't even give the character an actual character, which is kind of an issue. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we've talked about poor representation and things, but I think that is why you sometimes get that 
immediate need you know with people who don't have an opinion one way or another they don't care they just want good story good characterization you can turn a reader off who would be perfectly open to a story mm-hmm. just by doing something like that yeah i completely agree um and it it, it is this uh <laughs> um you know the, the characters becoming flimsy mouthpieces really isn't it um for you know theories ideas um and a lot of it i think is for clout in that oh young people want this so let's just put it in without consideration or thought um and i want them to see that i really care about this um so i'm going to kind of hammer it in and i think to a certain degree if you do very much care about something sometimes you can do that and it's something that a lot of young writers do as well and when i say young writers i mean people who are who are starting out who are relatively new and you do kind of have to fine tune that so it's not necessarily a well you're a terrible writer it's just something to be conscious of yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) reactance generally only sets in if you're someone with the rigor of self-discipline to be always checking and questioning your own views and opinions so basically if you read something where the author is saying something that you actually agree with but they're saying in a very heavy-handed manner chances are if you're someone who's in the habit of questioning yourself and calling yourself on your own bullshit, you'll start calling, you'll start questioning what they're saying as well, mm-hmm. just because it's a habit of mind. Um, also, if you write or you analyse writing for some other purposes, so, you know, I've, I'm sure Madeline reads very analytically, she probably can't help it because mm. she teaches creative writing. <laughs> um, you'll find other writers tend to read very analytically. After a while, that shit does not shut off, you know, you're kind of stuck with it. Yeah, it it really is. That's it. You are 100. It's just always on. <laughs> <Just there. laughs> um, and sometimes it, you know, it, it's on when you're watching something. It doesn't matter what media it is. If you're you're taking on board something, it's um, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. It is. But um, I, I tell you what, it's one of the most annoying things if you are. If, yes. if, if you are with a writer who's doing that if you're two writers in a room then you sit and discuss basically two writers this is this is what happens a podcast happens so jules and i are like <laughs> talking about it but our par- poor partners are both like please be quiet <laughs> please let us just enjoy the film this is why Madeline and me buddy watching something together is an absolute joy to someone who, who enjoys Detecting Dragons. We should do an, like a video episode where we actually watch and critique something as yes. it's happening. <laughs> we totally It would be very illuminating. Um, yeah, uh, obviously the final thing where reactants probably would set in is the views and themes drastically oppose yours. So, I mean, if... Uh, I'm trying to take an example... I quite enjoy some Edgar Rice Burroughs, but it is of its time, very of its time. And every so often I'll read a phrase that make me go, whoa, kind of thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not so much that it, it, it contradicts my opinions and viewpoint of the world, as in I feel it contradicts everybody's. Yeah. So, we've come to, so that's an extreme example. But you know what I mean? Someone says something that's kind of like, a, oh, someone's just dropped a entire box full of scrap metal somewhere i heard that clang (laughs) that's a great way of putting it (laughs) no way i can ignore that one okay so let's actually give some example of fiction that we have found preachy 
and why. Now remember, when we're talking about this, we're not necessarily saying that these are bad books or films or anything like that. We're simply giving our own reaction to them. So this is not a, if you like this, you're a garbage kind of argument. We don't go in for that. Um, but these are just some, sort of some examples that we can currently think of. Yeah. Um, it was just something I have to say that Obviously, I get a perspective from watching a lot of speculative st stuff with Alan as well, mm -hmm. and his his tolerance for any sort of preachiness is is even narrower than mine. Like in the <laughs> first sort of ten fifteen minutes, he'll be like, "Nope," kind of thing, <laughs> and you have much ado to keep him interested at that point. Um, but we watched the adaptation of Lovecraft Country a little while back when it came out, and mm -hmm. we've both been really looking forward to it. I'd read the book. Um, I'm sorry, author names are going to escape me today because my brain is sort of on about 35% in standby. <laughs> so, author names, I'll give you the titles and you can look them up. You all know what Google's for. It's fine. Um, and, I mean, I read the book because Alan recommended it to me and I really loved it. it, it, it I say the book is actually kind of a collection of interlinked short stories and novellas mm -hmm. all set around this idea of... Um, basically just pre-civil rights movement in America and you know this guy who finds out that he's inherited something um, and moves down south to find out what what happened with this inheritance and his connection with this very very white family mm -hmm. main characters are all black kind of thing yeah um, and it's it, obviously the clues in the title Lovecraft Country well you know, Lovecraft was not known for being inclusive. Uh, no, he was. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, I like I like the seditious nature of, of someone taking that and saying, yeah, this is a great concept. What if we did this with it? Yeah. And it was brilliant. But reading those interlinked short stories and reading the depictions of the racism and stuff were incredibly uncomfortable. And I was sort of saying to Alan, I, I, you know, I'm genuinely feeling really uncomfortable reading this, not attacked me personally, but sort of, this is so awful. Mm -hmm. um, and he didn't get that to the same sort of degree. He was kind of like, yeah, this is how I expect people to act. You know, it's kind of got a worse opinion of humanity than I have. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> I totally see that. <laughs> Worst opinion of humanity as a whole, but generally hopes for everyone's redemption far more than I do. So we kind of balance each other out. Um, so anyway, it's an incredible book. Highly recommend it. Okay. And I, we watched the series and I started off quite, they changed a couple of things. And I was just like, okay, this is, this is actually kind of interesting. This is fine. By the end of the season, it was kind of like there'd been somebody in the wings saying, no, it's not diverse enough, even though it's like an almost entirely black cast all the way through and it wasn't enough for to have one side winning the other side <clears throat> losing kind of thing it had to be on an almost torturous descent on the other side right um it, it was like someone from io9 had been standing in the wings yelling no, no no you must grind the white faces into the dust kind of thing there must be blood and it was kind of insulting to everybody i think Mm. but it came across as extremely preachy and I don't know why they didn't just stick with the book with the few changes that they would have done because the book was already saying everything so well yeah it, that is one of those things where it's almost like it's 
this is no longer actually a, a, a good part of trying to have a sort of a conversation or, or raise an important theme. It is actually treating your audience like an idiot, over-explaining, um, like you, it, you don't trust them to understand nuance. It's like the toilet training of a puppy kind of thing. You know, you're not supposed <laughs> to rub their nose in it kind of thing, but some people do, and it's, it, that's what it felt like. Oh. And it's like, you know... You're not, we don't need this. We're, you know, the sort of people who are engaging with this already agree with you. That's the thing. Yeah. (laughs) You're not not catching the few casual random racists out there who actually (laughs) genuinely hold these opinions because they don't watch this stuff. They don't ask those questions. Yeah. So you're not only preaching to the choir, you've taken the choir down, you've given them all the whipping for no reason. (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so that we can really <laughs> put the send the message home. <laughs> oh, that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um I don't know I know they were talking about a second season, but I think it got cancelled and I'm fairly sure the reason it got cancelled was because um, because of this, this direction they decided to go in, which is a shame because it was a really intelligent look at things like race relations, or it could have been. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yes, that's one of my examples. Um, I did actually put down elements of Shadow and Bone. I don't mean all of Shadow and Bone, by the way, because by and large, I liked it. Yeah. But there were some things in there, and we've talked about Shadow and Bone before, and what I at least felt wasn't done very well. Yeah, because I think one of the things that was discussed was the fact that um, they didn't really, you know, they wanted to add this whole kind of, okay, well, let's let's talk about, let's have the suggestion that uh, Alina Starkov is actually from, is half shoe. Yeah. Um, and that's conceptually an interesting idea. Um, conceptually. But the problem is that they didn't actually do anything with it. It was just there to kind of make other characters appear racist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we discussed that in that there's no question of sort of identity. There's no other, you know, it was just there to say we've kind of ticked that diversity. I didn't have any problem with Alina being half shoe. I think the actress does a fantastic job. For the you know, I, th- I think she's really, really good, um, and I think it, it it's cool to have that. But the problem is that they weren't actually properly invested in actually exploring that as a storyline. No, I mean it had been dropped by the third episode, and all of the exposition was done via dialogue, which is so incredibly clumsy. It's unreal. I mean, it should never have happened in a show with that kind of funding behind it. No, no. So that was incredibly badly, badly written. (laughs) Yeah, for a show that was, for the most part, otherwise pretty damn good. um, Yeah, that bit, I think, was um, a letdown. A real letdown. Um, And I suppose it kind of did the thing that I hate in fantasy, whereby um, because people are trying to superimpose the real world as they know it on top of the fantasy world Mm. you then have to import prejudices from our real world into this fantasy world where they don't necessarily fit because people do not like the idea of um 
I suppose, parallel prejudices or prejudices developing out of something within that fantasy world. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and the thing is, like, it it does make sense to a certain degree for there to be some kind of, you know, difficulty between the shoe um, and the... and the, They're not the Kirch. They're the... Um, oh, God, what are they called? Ah, the Kirch are, are the other people. <laughs> yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, um, Ravkins. Um, it did sort of make sense, but they just... They just didn't do it properly, I think. And that was a real letdown. Yeah. Um, I've already mentioned imaginary friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the problem with imaginary friend for me is that what uh, Chbotsky was actually saying is, you know, there's a lot of child abuse in imaginary friend. A lot, as in like everybody at some point. And what he was getting at is that nobody goes on to abuse a child if they haven't been abused themselves. The problem I have with that is that it is statistically, categorically, provably false. Um, there's been any number of studies that have proven that this is this is not the case. Sometimes people, for whatever reason, um, it it does it's not rooted in their own childhood abuse. Mm. Uh, so that's <laughs> that's kind of so that was um, that was kind of strike one for me. And mm. then he kept hammering it. He kept hammering that thing home and he added a Christian veneer over the top of the whole thing. And I've got a real problem with people in books yelling, it doesn't matter what happens to you, you must forgive other people. Because, not because I think that's wrong, but because I think forgiveness is a personal thing. Mm. I don't think anybody's got the right to say you should forgive somebody because it's up to you. Um, Yeah. I, I think there's a lot to be said for looking at things, picking them up and taking responsibility and saying, I'm an adult now and I will not let this affect the rest of my life. But you don't have to forgive anyone. Screw them. Yeah. I think... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that eloquent... (laughs) Screw them. (laughs) Life lessons from Jules. Um... Well, I mean, it's personal, isn't it? You might decide, yes, I'm happy to. You you might... In theory, everyone's entitled to... A redemption arc if you like but you the wronged party are not responsible for giving it to them yeah and i think you are right in that being sort of someone saying i cannot forgive another person doesn't mean that the other person um cannot you know forgiveness can happen on several levels um and it's also that that message of well, you cannot fully heal unless you forgive, and I I don't agree with that. I think that forgiveness can be a large part of healing for some people, but I think more than forgiveness, it's more to do with acceptance. And by that I mean acceptance that usually there's nothing you can do which is going to change someone else. Yeah. Um, therefore, relying on them to become a better person in order to find your own peace is is useless because they will never be the person that you need them to be. And so you can accept someone for the things that they've done and accept that these things happened and that can be a big part of the healing process. But yeah, the whole sort of you should forgive someone, no, you, as Jules said, forgiveness is not something which is owed. Um, 
it's something which is very personal and it's just even if that you know with that being something that i don't agree with Mm. i can get over someone putting that in their book because they're entitled to but there was no opposing (laughs) this is what we'll get into in a bit but there was there was no opposing opinion yeah there was no exploration it was kind of this is what must happen and as you've said you know forgiveness happens on several levels um what what really took the cake for me is that under the Christian veneer, you were actually seeing children who were experiencing different types of abuse, most notably emotional abuse, mm. whereby children were told that, I say children, but, you know, sort of teens were told that, you know, um, your sexual desires and things are, are bad, they're wrong, and that if you act on them, then you're wrong and you're damned, etc., um, that sort of thing. And it's like, that's child abuse. I'm sorry, if you bring your child up to believe that there is someone in the sky who's looking down on them and telling them that they are bad and wrong, that is a form of child abuse. You cannot package this as everyone must forgive everyone. And by the way, this thing over here, that's not abuse. That's okay. Yeah. So, yes, got to the end of that book. Very, very mixed feelings, having enjoyed 600 pages of horror and absolutely hated the ending <laughs> with a, <laughs> the fire of a thousand burning suns so um yes make up your own mind um while we're on the subject of the whole young adult experience and, sorry you know, I was like while we're on the subject of hellfire um lisa jane smith uh most notable well most known probably for the vampire diaries mm-hmm um, I really enjoyed her books when I was 18 and I, you know, I'd probably sit and read one now and enjoy the world building and everything. Um, they're, they're light, they don't demand very much of you. No. But, <laughs> and, you know, while I don't feel good about the fact that she she basically got bumped out of her own series with the Vampire Diaries because she sold it to a book packaging company. Yeah. So she didn't keep any of the rights for that or for the secret circle. On the other hand, if you look at the books she continued to write for the Vampire Diaries, they're fucking nuts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, okay, that's fine. That's what you want to write. But she is absolutely obsessed with none of her 17-year-old protagonists, none of her 17-year-old characters having sex, apart from one who is very much the antagonist who gets pregnant and is literally called stupid because she did it without protection kind of thing. And then this person then covers it up by um, claiming that a male friend raped her in order to try and blackmail him into marrying her. It's all very, very screwed up. So I'm kind of glad she didn't get to go on and write more Vampire Diary books after that. And it's not like this is is one book. This is kind of a, a greater or lesser theme in pretty much every young adult book she's ever written. There's, there's a serious, serious hang up about sex there, which I don't think there's a place for in young adult fiction or there shouldn't be. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, uh, and it, you know, in hindsight, that's kind of preachy. That was kind of a in your face thing. <laughs> yes, and quite damaging. <laughs> so, so, God. Oh. It's very much the nice girls don't thing. But uh, blood sucking, fine. Blood sucking's fine. Yep. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> blood sucking's fine. Apparently, you know, cheating on your boyfriend with your boyfriend's brother, fine. 
you know, if you're snogging someone else kind of thing. It's fine if it's just kissing. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of confusing signaling going on there. Wow. Okay. Um. <laughs> so not great. Um, I've, you know, I can sort of lightly skip through this one because Star Trek Discovery, um, not super happy with the direction that went in from the second season onwards. Yeah. And again, it's the the overt screechiness of it all, the the preachy tone, which wasn't necessary because Star Trek's been knocking it out of the park since Star Trek came out. Yeah, so that's one of the things that has really kind of put me off even even trying to watch it because I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a go. Um, and honestly, the more I heard about it, the more I thought, this just sounds like a like an exercise in in preaching. And one of the things that annoys me is that also whenever people go in, they say, right, we've got an agenda, we want to talk about stuff. It then can only be serious or miserable, which completely with Star Trek is always very hilarious to me because original Star Trek is the is the furthest thing from, I mean, it's definitely got its sad and awful moments and its <laughs> tragic moments, but... Yeah it's also it doesn't take itself that seriously and yet at the same time it has you know some exceptional moments um for you know uh, you know social justice and stuff like that um and i think one of the issues with star trek discovery and potentially to an extent but i haven't seen it so i can't comment so jules you would have to say whether this was or not to an extent uh picard um, it's just a little bit too much, I think. Uh, with Discovery, it was very clear that there are a bunch of people arguing about how to make Star Trek more diverse in the writers' room. Right. That's what's come across, and they've done that. And I don't know if somebody then said, "Oh, we better have a story." It was very <laughs> much an afterthought. With Picard, there's definitely a story. But I have to say that there's a few little things starting to creep in now in the second season that I've been watching that have made me go, oh God, please tell me that the writers from Discovery haven't migrated to Picard. <laughs> I just want a story first, character first, and then think about the diversity, please. Yeah. Because Star Trek, that, that's the thing, Star Trek was already doing. If you look at the original Star Trek, think about when it was made. Think about the fact we were in the middle of the Cold War and they had a Russian officer on the on the deck. They had a Japanese officer on the deck. They had a black woman on the deck. Yeah. It was the most diverse program at the time. It was. And the, the other thing is that and they were all uh, not equal, obviously, because one of them was the captain. But you know what I mean is that they were all officers. Yeah, they, they were all equal value. Yeah, they were all respected. Um, they all had their part to play um, and they were all listened to. When Uhura said, Captain, there's something going on, he listened to her, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you had the next generation, which built on that. Yeah. And, and did it slightly better again. And then you ended up the same again with Voyager and Deep, Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine, which it will come to yes. a bit later. Because <laughs> we can't, we can't es escape <laughs> without talking about Deep Space Nine. Okay, so um, 
Uh, yeah, Paper Butterflies was a book that I, I was given an arc of some years ago when it came out. Mm -hmm. It did not land for me at all. Um, I can see what the author was doing. Yeah. But it's about a mixed race girl whose father then, whose white father then remarries when her mother dies and marries a white woman and the, the bullying she experiences in her own home. Mm -hmm. Except when you look at it, the mother, the stepmother, also bullies her own daughter. Right. And uh, I don't... It, it was just... So it got to the point where it was so implausible, and it, once again, it was issues first and characterization second. Yeah, which was kind of a problem. Um, <laughs> and spoiler alert, guys! But it all ends when the main character burns the house down with her family inside, allegedly accidentally. Wow! Ends up on death row, <laughs> uh, talking to a priest—a priest who tells her that he, she must forgive everything that was done to her. Um, what was... <laughs> so there's a theme here basically basically if you start shout touting christian forgiveness to me then my knee will come up <laughs> as, as if you tapped it with a hammer um, if you tap it hard enough it'll come up high enough to hit your chin i'm afraid sorry and if um, you tap it hard enough i will kick you in the face says jules i won't mean to it'll just happen it's an autonomic reflex um I don't forgive Jules, it was, a... it was an autonomic <laughs> reflex. Yeah, forgive my, forgive my nervous system. Um, no, I don't feel it was a well done book. and It's kind of a bit of a throwaway example here, but once again, and we're going to look at in a minute how to avoid all this kind of stuff, but once again, there was no opposing viewpoint, and I think you could have saved that book, as you could probably have saved many of these other things we've mentioned with an opposing viewpoint. It's also worth noting that um, th when we talk about an opposing viewpoint, we don't mean, well, unless you've got a racist voice coming in there um, to balance it out, you're wrong. That's not what we're saying at all. That's not what we mean by, um, you know, and it's not about saying, oh, yes, we've got to, you've got to give um, bigotry. It's an equal voice. Um, it's not about that. It's about considering nuance yeah okay so let's look at how you avoid preachiness so as we were just saying show both sides of the argument mm -hmm. um all of us have our dearly cherished beliefs and our even more dearly cherished prejudices yes uh, i do you do everyone does no matter how liberal their views are yes and sometimes even the act of saying i'm liberal in my views and really going and embracing them means that you don't listen to the entire argument and you're actually <laughs> becoming more closed-minded than you think you are yes and it, we're all guilty of it we're all guilty yep. of feeling and uh, i mean to be honest we've done it i think we've done it in this in this podcast and then at, at other points have been kind of challenged about certain things and have rethought those things Yep. You know, so no one is above scrutiny when it comes to that. Um, but being conscious of it does make a big difference. It's why Madeline and I bang on so much about you must question yourself. You must ask yourself why you include certain things in your writing. You must ask where, where your beliefs and viewpoints have come from. Yeah. I mean, we're not saying change everything, but we are saying 
know where it's come from and keep asking yourself if it's still true yeah be conscious yeah just be conscious of of your intentions or the other thing is that sometimes you might suddenly discover something that you didn't even realize about yourself yeah which is hold on a second i have i've talked about this theme a lot why am i doing this Why am I doing this? Oh my god, is it the... <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, call myself out here. I've talked about my knee-jerk reaction. Um, my knee-jerk reaction is nearly always attached to certain displays of Christianity and fiction. Yes. Um, I would like to point out that I have met and have been in awe of, and I always am in awe of, genuinely Christian people who practice on Monday what they preach on Sunday. Yes. Who genuinely have that faith and live by it. And you know what? I absolutely salute that. I can't embrace it because it doesn't make sense to me. It it doesn't fit me. Mm. But I absolutely respect that. What I do, I'm trying very hard to get over is this ongoing incandescent rage that won't go down. Um, because the, the training wheels on my religious bicycle came off very early in my life and I got both knees very badly scraped, shall we say. <laughs> Um, that's definitely one way of, of, of putting it <laughs> and so now when certain things trigger them as we've said before it is the metaphorical hammer on the top of my knee that will make my leg shoot out yeah um so that's where that comes from and i do when i do have that reaction i recognize the, the feel it gives me in my gut now and i actually try and stop and think and there's a couple of times when alan's been talking about something and he said you've gone very quiet and i'm like i'm having that reaction that i told you about yeah i just need a couple of moments to process what i really think and not just say the first thing that i want to say angrily because i know that that is not the most logical answer to what you've just said yes um and you know it's perfectly legitimate particularly if you faced some kind of trauma or something like that in the past um, which has led you to feel to have huge knee-jerk reactions to things. It's perfectly legitimate to actually find yourself really struggling to understand something, to follow something, um, or even feeling like I don't want to debate this because it 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 actually hurts too much. But being conscious of that and also understanding that someone else questioning or bringing up this topic um, doesn't inherently make them a bad person it just means that they've had a different lived experience to you yeah absolutely so in your writing you don't have to be completely unbiased and you know if you're writing fiction it's probably going to be almost impossible to be completely unbiased it's only a non-fiction where you should really strive for that yeah um but you should try to present both sides of the argument so uh, I don't think anyone's really arguing that the Nazi viewpoint was the correct one, hopefully. No. But there's plenty of fiction and non-fiction out there where writers have successfully managed to look at the viewpoint of how you know the Nazi mindset came about and how people got drawn into it. And they've had characters in their fiction. Like I don't actually like Ritya Sepetis, but um, they have written some great historical type pieces like salt of the sea salt Mm. from the sea salt to the sea i think is where one of the characters is actually a a young german who very much espouses the nazi mindset and he's not a likable character but he is somewhat sympathetic you can see how he got that and it's important to understand that not just completely shove it to one side and ignore it yeah i completely agree i've um 
I've seen things and I've read things, um, both real and and, and um, fiction, where sort of certain ideas that I don't agree with, um, for example, transphobia and stuff like that, have have been raised, or you know, sort of anti-trans trans issues have been raised. Now, I'm very vocal about my feelings regarding trans rights, um, which is they deserve them, weirdly enough, but. I think it's very important that we don't silence the the narrative which sort of goes, okay, but why are people so worried about these things? Because understanding that and considering that, um, it's not actually about giving it a voice or, or necessarily saying it's right. It's about um, addressing what is usually a separate issue. Um, Okay, so for example, again, things like Brexit at the moment. Um, I say at the moment, like it's still happening. <laughs> you know what I it mean? It feels like it should be. It just, just yeah. Um, uh, I again, very, I was very open about how I felt about that. Um, it's ridiculous for me to turn around and say, well, anyone who voted Brexit was just an idiot, just a racist idiot, because for a lot of people, it was a lot more complicated than that. Um, yeah. And the the narrative of just saying, well, you're just that, uh, pushes people, you, you either believe this or you're wrong, pushes people toward those extremes in the same way that, you know, we were talking about how if you preach too much, um, it can push people over the edge. And what happens is that people turn around and they say, I'm not being listened to. My genuine worries or my genuine concerns, which for I think a large majority of people aren't actually to do with hate. I think there was uh, for Brexit, there was people who were genuinely afraid of oh god we don't want lots of migrants arriving in the country. Why were they afraid of this? Because they have concerns regarding work, because they have concerns regarding health. Um, and these are the concerns that have been ignored or which yeah, have been kind of shifted over. If they weren't poor and disenfranchised and felt disconnected from the people who govern them but actually really just profit off them yeah then those concerns would have been dealt with without this very extreme referendum situation yeah exactly um and so understanding that would have been actually could have been a crucial part of this not happening of of you know of brexit not happening um but it it wasn't and i think also the fact that when the uh you know when the voting and stuff was happening the it's either this or you're an idiot or you're racist would was probably not a fantastic narrative to put forward to people who were saying i i just really want to be heard um so Yeah. yeah it is important to to kind of address that and also not to erase that there is there are also unpleasant people in the world too (laughs) yeah absolutely i think you know madeline kind of hit it on the head with the fact that actually most of it isn't about hate the 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 number of genuine died in the wool racists is very very small really really small and to the point where now it's kind of things are generally being said whispered but the really nasty shit is being whispered behind hands because they know that they can't really say it out loud because it's not considered acceptable mm. but if we i don't know if you if you create that reactance situation in people then you, you could actually be creating more prejudice 
Well, yeah, and that is, it's one of those really frightening things, which is that when we create an us and them mentality, um, where people, for whatever reason, because no one grows up, no one, no one just comes into the world being a racist, for example. I mean, we're using racism just, just as an example, but no one comes into the world being racist we come into the world being confused and if we've never ever seen if you're born in i don't know um <laughs> okay if you're born in winchester <laughs> if you were born in winchester like 50 years ago you <laughs> or you were born in cheshire or something like that 50 years ago you might have never seen a black person until you get to you know until you're a teenager um again think about tv and stuff like that as well you might literally have never seen a black person um, well i can i can bring you back in fact i don't <laughs> i was just thinking, i was about to say actually in dorset where i grew up um, yeah. it wasn't until i was seven years old that i actually saw a black person in real life dorset's very rural and admittedly at seven, I wasn't wandering all around Dorset, and I'm sure it was a lot more cosmopolitan, and there were certainly a lot of Chinese people around. Um, but I, it wasn't until my mum was pregnant with my younger sister, and the midwife who came out to see her um, mm -hmm. came and visited us at her house. And it was the first time, and she, she, she'd come from, uh, I want to say, sort of Namibia, um, I think. I could be wrong. And I, I'd never ever seen anybody like her. I mean, I was seven. Yeah. So, yeah, not massively old. But, yeah, you don't even have to go back 50 years or somewhere. No. Or, or even more out into the wilds. Yeah, you, you really don't. So you can get people, you know, when people are separated from certain things, from certain experiences, they will form ideas. Those ideas aren't necessarily right. Um... <laughs> But it is a lot to do with circumstances as well, with opportunities too, um, and the gentle way in which we are introduced to things. But no one's born with burning hatred in their heart. Uh, and what happens, I think, is you get people who question or come out with, with stuff which is politically incorrect, which is wrong, which is offensive, um, and I'll give an example. When I was at school, I was uh, homophobic. I would, I was one, I was very homophobic because everybody in school was homophobic. Um, I was also, you know, queer without realizing it because I had internalized a lot of homophobia. Um, and it wasn't until that was sort of challenged in a very gentle way that I was I had the chance to, you know, readdress that um, and rethink that. But it, I had that opportunity. I was given that opportunity, which obviously was very healthy for me in the long run, as I figured out my own sexuality and stuff. Um, but if you are questioning or you're a product of your environment and you say something which is wrong and then people really start to attack you, instead of giving you the opportunity to learn, educating you, and I'm not talking about people who resist that, I'm talking about giving everybody the opportunity and giving and giving them the chance to speak and give out their concerns, um, 
you push them towards extremism because they suddenly go, I'm not accepted here. And where are they accepted among people whose ideas are even more extreme? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I told you the story about the <laughs> the, the lad I sort of knew who <laughs> was absolutely obnoxious in company, um, no matter what. And one evening the others just sort of buggered off and left me walking up the road with him and he he'd had a bit to drink and he was like I don't understand it Jules why don't I have a girlfriend I'm not bad looking I've got a doctorate in nanotechnology etc 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 and he had been utterly obnoxious all evening he'd been so annoying um he'd kind of ruined my friend's birthday oh no and I turned around and I said the reason you don't have a girlfriend is because you're a dick (laughs) <laughs> and he, st- he just stared at me. I said, you're a complete wanker. You, you're condescending. You're rude. You treat everybody like they're a species below you. Nobody likes you because you treat them badly. And he just went, oh. And I said, if you pull yourself together, you know, sort yourself out. I said, you'll probably have a girlfriend in like three months or, or sooner. But you've got to treat people like they are, in fact, other people. You've got to listen when they talk. Yeah. And be interested and not just talk over them because you're so insecure. You're worried you don't exist unless you're talking. Um, Yeah, I really didn't (laughs) mention my words back. Jules. (laughs) But I have to say, the next time I saw him, a few months later, he'd completely changed. He'd taken what I said on board, which admittedly... I hadn't meant in a cruel way, but I also hadn't delivered in the kindest way possible because he'd really <laughs> pissed me off. But he'd taken it to heart. He he needed somebody at some point to kick him up the arse and tell him he needed to do X, Y and Z. He went off, did X, Y and Z, had a lovely girlfriend, they got married, they have two lovely kids, he's got a nice career. He had everything he was complaining that he didn't have that he wanted and couldn't understand why he couldn't get. So... And and yet, at that point in time, he was teetering on the edge of becoming an, in, an incel, genuinely. Right, yeah. Didn't have necessarily that term for that back then, but that's where he was, looking back. Mm. So, yes, this, this whole thing of sometimes you just need somebody to explain something to you. Yeah. <laughs> does have a lot of merit. <laughs> and sometimes you need someone to explain it to you in a very... Uh... I say forceful. For, forceful's the wrong word, but sometimes you need a jewels, and sometimes you need someone a bit. Um, I was going to say kinder, but tactful. Tactful. <laughs> Admittedly, I mean, if it had just been a case of he hadn't been an obnoxious git for the last five years, then I'm pr- he probably wouldn't have got my temper bubbling over like that. No, that's that's fair enough. <laughs> In anyway, so. If your main character stridently marches through the story without anyone ever disagreeing with her view, then you're probably being preachy. Yeah, probably. Um, You have to think about the storytelling potential as well. Uh, So she has a very specific viewpoint and argues it and then somebody else sort of contradicts her. And maybe she gets them to come around to her view, but she also comes around and sees that there's some merit in their idea. Yes. As well. Yeah, and we we do have some good examples um, of that, which we'll we'll we can talk about in a minute. But I think one good example actually of that um, was in Trudy Canavan's The Black Magician trilogy. Yeah, um, where 
Sonia is forced to consider actually the wider problems of you know of the city um, beyond just obviously um, her main concern which is the the poor people of the city which is a very you know legitimate concern that she has and she she ultimately I think she does kind of she gets what she wants out of that and that she st- she starts to address the issue that she feels is very important um but she does have to consider that actually there's there's more to it just than um we need to do xyz because the the changes that need to happen are on a larger scale as well yeah yeah absolutely um so something that i do want to say is that doubt is a cornerstone of a robust belief um, this is something i took from anne bronte's poetry strangely enough but, <laughs> um and that is that that is very much a very christian belief um that you should have some doubts and your your doubts the very process of questioning your beliefs makes them stronger mm. i wholeheartedly endorse that for any beliefs that you hold if you haven't questioned your beliefs then chances are they're going to crumble at the first argument because you have never ever challenged them yeah. within yourself yeah absolutely i wholeheartedly agree with that it's an important thing to do i don't know why i was about to do a mario voice there but <laughs> <laughs> um, and anyway as we were saying no matter how repugnant one side of an argument is you can still consider it objectively yes so, you know, you can have a character who is at least partially sympathetic. Nobody, as we've said, no one wakes up and thinks, today I'll become Adolf Hitler. <laughs> yes, unless it's Adolf Hitler. Um, you know, I'm not uh, sure he even woke up and thought, I think this is where my life is heading. <laughs> I think the sad thing is you make the little decisions and then one day you wake up and that's who you are. That's, that's the disturbing thing. But yes. Yeah, no, no one sets out with yeah. that in and, mind. And no one is therefore saying, oh, therefore Adolf Hitler is um, relatable. Uh, <laughs> Let's hope not. No. <laughs> um, other things you can do. So point number two, develop the internal conflict. We've talked a lot about the internal versus external conflict. Mm. Um, examining theme can be a great way to get an internal struggle going for main character so she should metaphorically butt heads with other opinions and she should change her mind because she's not always right um and being able to admit that you're wrong wholly or partially is a great strength um as well as help helping to build nuance i think yeah definitely um that's both in real life and in fiction yes <laughs> I mean, we're not life coaches but you know <laughs> being able to admit you're wrong is definitely I, a strength i would go to a life coaching lesson if, if you were teaching it jules uh, no nobody should get a life coach <laughs> <No>. <laughs> because you come out of it with kind of like yep don't give a fuck i'm just gonna do me, do me. that would be it <laughs> Um, yeah, so address the grey areas. There's always a grey area in an argument. It, it, I think that's one of the things why people get so passionately wedded to their positions is nobody wants to admit there's a grey area in the middle. Yeah. Um, you you don't have to like the grey area. You don't have to... Oh, God, this is going to be a really controversial example, but okay. Um, the transatlantic slave trade, or very much the transatlantic slavery, the, the slavery and plantations. Yeah. 
Firstly, there was never a point when everybody thought it was okay. But no. leaving that aside, when you're out there and you have slaves on your plantations, your entire economy is set up around it, which is bad. And yes, maybe your economy deserves to fail at that point. But on top of that, you have a duty of care to the people under you. So not only your own family, but your workers, your paid workers, your indentured workers and your slaves, you have a duty of care to them as well. You, that there's a reason there were laws in place which meant you could not simply free your slaves. This is one of the grey area things because categorically it is absolutely wrong and I don't think anyone can make a compelling argument for why it isn't yeah. the case. But you, can but, under- the- but you start to understand why it took so long to change yeah. things. I mean, I used to be incredibly angry that a portion of my taxes up until 2012 went towards paying off the people who had owned slaves. We were, the United Kingdom, were still paying that off up until 2012. So if you paid taxes before then, some of your tax money went towards that. And I used to be really angry. And then I realised that if we hadn't done that and also aggressively really argued with other countries like France and Spain and Portugal etc mm. um, using trade embargoes and militarised force and things then it would never have moved as quickly as it did and yes it still isn't enough it still isn't enough to make up for anything but on the other hand it's more than nothing so yeah. Yes, it's it, again, you're in the grey area again, and nobody likes it because I think everyone would like it to be cut and dry, bad guys, good guys, the good guys won kind of thing, and it's just unfortunately not that straightforward. Yeah, and this is definitely a case of <laughs> us being able to turn around and say, this is wrong, but also us having to say, this is the reality. And what is also very, very important about that, I think, is that being able to understand why something happened in the way that it did, um, and this is why fiction is also so important, um, allows us to kind of create and problem solve um, issues which we might face in the future. Um, And I think it's one of the most important parts of storytelling. It's why dystopian fiction, for example, um, and science fiction are so important because they ask those questions and they do introduce some very, very difficult subjects. So by kind of looking at these things, which are nasty, which we don't want to think about, which we don't want to concede to. And when I say concede, I don't mean agree, but concede as in, okay, I can understand why this happened. I disagree with it categorically, but I can understand why it happened. We need to understand that because if we don't, we are fated to repeat ourselves in some form or another. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, uh, again, controversial example of a gray area and one that, you know, I genuinely would hesitate to touch. Yes. I think a lot of people would hesitate to touch that grey area, and yet that grey area is there, whether you like it or not. Yes. <laughs> and again, I should just point out for anyone who's listening, uh, we're not saying that slavery is a grey area. I think we can all agree slavery yeah. is not a good thing. <laughs> the reason it didn't get overturned overnight yes. when enough people had raised awareness, Yeah. Um, that is unfortunately the grey area. And yeah. 
And as Madeline said, if we understand why, then hopefully we can avoid it happening again. And yeah. we can recognise patterns of it in other countries which are still employing slavery today. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes. So also determine the motives, fears, dreams and goals of all characters, even if you don't intend to use any of that on the page. So, yeah, nobody should turn up just to be a victim, I think, is one of the things. And that is certainly uh, something that happens in preachy books that I've seen where someone is there just to be kind of like the whipping boy. Yeah. Um, and the worst is when they're there to be the whipping boy um, and they are also the minority they're a minority so yeah. it, that's the point where you're just there like is this they're literally just there to preach um and actually you're you're sort of at that point kind of actually being counterproductive definitely with it's the like whole the, thing the, the gay character who turns up and dies in a homophobic attack or the, the woman who turns up and uh, dies in a murder rape situation but mm. it, but the main character who is a man always yep. his awareness is raised by this this issue yeah so yeah that all that that stuff that is that's not good mm. yeah now I, I should point out it's okay if you do have a situation whereby you you know you do have a, a, a minority character or something like that who does who, who does die as part of the plot where that's a different situation um, but yeah, it, it, preaching, you'll recognise preachiness. It's actually once you start to sort of to find it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> enjoy this, guys, because if you really get thinking after this episode, whenever you read or see something, you're going to be <laughs> subconsciously looking for it. And when you see it, you won't be able to not see it. No. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, the third thing, which I think is probably one of the most important in not including preachiness in your writing is show rather than tell yeah. and it seems like a really obvious point but if you're constantly telling the reader what to think then yes you're going to come across as preachy yeah um and also condescending yeah big time <laughs> um so yeah and it doesn't necessarily even need to be in a sort of passage of exposition if you are loading your your personal viewpoints into dialogue and internal monologue for a character um, if you've got great big passages of thematic exposition, rather than showing your characters in action, in action, in action, <laughs> displaying your themes, then you are probably preaching. Yeah. And I mean, like, also, this is the other thing is that, weirdly, enough, I, we're almost sort of starting to preach ourselves at this point. Um, yep. But <laughs> but the the problem is that within a book, it's also just it's really boring reading. Yeah, it, it's not interesting. Um, this was the other thing with Imaginary Friend. It would get really good, really, really sort of horrific. And then there'd be a pause and there'd be three or four pages of sort of like morality or very specific morality. And it's um, like, hang on, what happened to the story? And then it would happen <laughs> again later on. So I don't know. I, I'm amazed. I, in some ways, I'm amazed I got to the end of the book. But I think by page 600 it was kind of like no i'm going to finish <laughs> <laughs> i have invested too much time <laughs> yeah some fallacy got involved um if you write in first person then there will be times when your main character is obviously considering the moral implications of something or there probably should be yeah um or considering the themes that you're incorporating because presumably they either i mean 
they may not but they're probably sharing at least some of your own viewpoint and morality or they're going to explore some of it because they are your vehicle yeah um but it should come as a natural organic um shape-shifting type thing thought process not yes. as if you've just turned them into a mouthpiece for your essay yeah <laughs> Um, and this is it is also worth remembering that if you are reading an author's we we touched on this previously if you are reading an author's po- uh, book and they do have a character who has ideas or is pr- processing themes which you don't agree with that doesn't necessarily mean those are the author's viewpoints what they might actually be doing is exploring their theme by having their character be reprehensible <laughs> Absolutely. It's like um, um, Ian. Uh, oh God, what's his name? The guy who wrote Saturday, and uh, on Chesil Beach. Um, but his characters are all reprehensible. Yeah. That, so it's I- Ian McEwen. His yeah. characters are all reprehensible, um, and I don't think the point is that he's saying yes, these are good people because they're clearly not. They're <laughs> they're all very complicated. Uh, a lot of them are sort of a little bit miserable and I can't read the books because I just read them like oh I just don't like any of these people (laughs) and I'd like them to be quiet and go away (laughs) yeah but there's lots of different opposing viewpoints you never feel that it's one one thought that all the characters share and it's all being hammered home by the author yeah absolutely Um, and also it just wouldn't be realistic if all of the characters only agreed with one another I mean, it's fine if the, there's a group of friends and they all have, you know, a core core sort of belief on account of the fact that, you know, they, they're they unified by it, but, yeah. It's just boring yeah. otherwise. <laughs> it is. Yeah, so basically, show it through action. Yeah. So some exposition and dialogue is, is actually necessary, but mm. you need a lot less than you think. I mean, this is a newbie author mistake, to be honest. You can almost always tell a newbie author by... The way they throw exposition into dialogue it's yes. something that all writers grow out of hopefully yeah for the most part for the most part yes. <laughs> and again your mileage may vary depends on the genre sometimes the, whenever i have actually dipped my toe into reading just ordinary romance i've noticed a lot more expositionary dialogue and mm. it seems to be acceptable there yeah. So I guess it depends. I, it does depend, I think. Uh, it depends on character too, I think. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so look at a few of our favourite speculative fiction examples which don't, in our opinion, preach. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, well, why don't, you, why don't you start with The Stand? Because I know that you're really keen to... I am really keen. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I am currently rereading The Stand. This was... <laughs> <laughs> I got COVID-19 and my reaction to having a really high temperature was I really want to read Stephen King's The Stand where 98% of the population die of the flu. So that's how my weird little mind works. <laughs> but that kind of fed into this this idea for this episode. And, you know, it doesn't help that to compare the, the imaginary friend to The Stand because... As I've said, I didn't like the way Imaginary Friend dealt with Christian themes. The Stand also deals with Christian themes, but there are so many differing and opposing viewpoints. I mean, you've got the two main polarities. You've got Randall Flagg, the Dark Man, and Mother Abigail, who is basically a modern-day prophet, or modern-day for, you know, it's set in 1990, so not that modern now, but modern for the time it was written. Yeah. Um, 
and instead of society which is completely collapsed forming all these little tin pot dictatorships which you would kind of expect little tribes what happens is the, these two uh, opposing polarities pull people towards each towards themselves so you have people who feel one way morally going towards mother abigail and people who feel another way going towards randall flack mm. um at no point does Stephen King say yes all the bad people are with flag it's not that they're bad it's just that in some way what they've done is they've kind of shut themselves off from better feelings just like not all the good people who are with Mother Abigail are necessarily good it's just they're more inclined in that direction to be um you know, they want to be better, I think, is, is the thing. And it, it's very interesting that it's the choice that, that seems to define them. Because th- there's no getting away from it. Randall Flagg is very much like a populist president. Yeah. This is a strong man who will get things done. He will make America great again kind of thing. It's very much that sort of feeling. Yeah. Whereas Mother Abigail's kind of like, no, you're going to be a mess as a society and you're going to have to learn how to govern yourselves. Um no god is not going to come and sort it all out for you so again you've got these overarching christian themes and at no point do you ever feel like stephen king is shoving christianity as a hole down your throat in fact i wouldn't have even necessarily considered it a tale of dark christianity if he hadn't described it that way himself and i went oh yeah i guess it is kind of (laughs) yeah and it's one of those interesting things because i think because he grew up um Correct me if I'm wrong, but he he grew up in in Maine, didn't he? Yeah. Um. So he was introduced from a very young age to this kind of because I, I'm I'm pretty sure that that part of the of the country um is quite Christian. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, I think he himself is not so much a not like massively Christian, but also not really against it so sort of like yes within a certain set of parameters kind of thing yeah but what interests me is that he has touched on sort of themes of organized religion in a lot of his work yeah Um, and i feel like he's done that from a place of experience for the nuances of it and how it can people who do believe um, can be some of the best and kindest people and yeah. how you know that that having a label such as christian does not make her for person as it were yeah um and it is very much who they are before all of that and after all of that um and i think that he really he really touches on a lot of that in his writing yeah, I, I guess maybe that's why it resonates for me, is the fact that it, it resonates with my experience of Christianity, whereby some of the best people, no holds barred, best people I've ever met have been Christian, very devoutly Christian. Some yes. of them have been nuns, in fact. Some of the worst people I've ever met have been devoutly Christian. Some yes. of them have been nuns, in fact. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, So... Yeah, it's really easy to embody a religious doctrine for both good and evil, I guess. Yeah, Um, and so much of it, I think, does ultimately come down to whether a person is good or not has nothing to do with what they believe. Um, 
but rather who they are. Yeah. Yeah, it's, again, it's your choices ultimately which define you. Yeah. So um, I've kind of lumped these all together because they were made by the same people. Mm. I know Madeline's seen at least one of them, but Midnight yeah. Mass, The Haunting of Bly Manor and The Haunting of Hill House. Yes. Certainly Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass is, you know, aside from being like a king-esque type vampire, small <laughs> community type thing, which is brilliant, um, also asks some really deep and probing questions about the nature of reality, about life and death, and about redemption. And it never really comes up with absolute answers, which I think is a huge mark in its favour, because nobody can give you an absolute answer about any of those things a lot of it is down to personal opinion yeah um and the the thing with death is once you die you can't actually generally come back and tell people actually you were right <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know uh, there there's a one point which is a really beautiful episode that goes back and forth where different characters are talking about what it means to them to die what they think happens but one of the characters comes so close to what I personally feel makes the most sense, um, which I'm not going to go into, but it was so... It, this isn't so much that it, it gelled with what I thought, but I thought it was actually such a beautifully written and open and sort of embracing way of looking at life, mm. which didn't cut off anyone else's religious experience or spiritual experience or lack thereof. Yeah. The fact that there is, if you like, there's some beauty in having the belief that you just get switched out like a light and that's it. And your cells are recycled. There is beauty in that as well. So, yeah, that, that there is that. The Haunting of Blind Manor actually tackles some really interesting things to do with love and forgiveness. Um, and again very in a very non-preachy way because this was it's set in the 70s and is it 70s or early 80s um i think it's the 70s i'm pretty sure from the clothing it was the 70s but, <laughs> but the, you know the attitudes to sexuality and things weren't quite as open and the main character is gay yeah which we found out later and it's kind of like a twist on the turn of the screw yes um but with much improvement, in my opinion. I don't know about you. <laughs> and yes. there's a, there's, there is, there's a couple of really sweet love stories in there as well. And it, it, what it comes down to it is, in fact, what all of these come down to is that the only thing that really, really matters in the end is love. It's the only thing that will go on in any kind of form mm. that people can remember and understand. Um, but yeah even though that seems to be the default position for all of these shows that I've just mentioned, um, it's never really shoved down your throat. It's just kind of, this is what we think, and we're showing it through these characters in these stories. Mm. Yeah. Um, but also, I think the thing that works is that people were all different. Yeah. Um, and... You are overall presented with one idea, but it is not the only idea that's presented. And I think that that works in its favour. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Um, okay, I'll skip quickly through. I, I've put Battlestar Galactica down. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's very difficult. I'm talking about the remake, obviously, which is not that young anymore. Because <laughs> it's at least 10 years old. Um, it's, again, Battlestar Galactica, difficult questions on the nature of reality and what makes us human, what makes us humane. Mm. And, you know, what life is worth and what what life is, is worthless kind of thing. And again, no concrete answers. And also about war and <laughs> genocide. and So lots of really complicated stuff. But you, again, are shown so many different perspectives that there is never a moment where it's kind of like, yeah, this is clearly the thing you're supposed to think. Yeah. And it, um, to be honest, it wouldn't really be appropriate if that was put no. forward, would it? No, absolutely not. Um, and I think particularly it's not put forward because the whole premise is that sometimes there is no answer to anything yeah yeah we're, we're all just muddling through in the universe trying to make the best of things yeah and people are all different and sometimes that means that we clash <laughs> yes um yeah again you find this in deep space nine yes i think i mean deep space nine obviously has the more episodic type thing where you get a, a generally a self-contained episode a week within mm. these these frames and um it is one of the best star trek series in my opinion in terms of how it's written how it's done but you do have some deeply con potentially contentious issues for example you know when cisco gets bumped back in time to to theoretically being a black writer during civil rights movement era america yeah for example. But again, even though you're dealing with these very difficult issues, it never shoves anything down your throat. You, you do get to see multiple viewpoints. Yeah. Um, one thing that I really liked about that was that they, I think they, they made it difficult for some people because they had the guy who plays Odo, who's obviously very beloved yes um he is the editor who's getting in the way or who won't actually publish um cisco's work yeah. and I, I i really liked the way that they did that because we want odo to just be the good guy because we think of odo as this kind of um this beacon of uh of right, of righteousness, of fairness, of, you know, things like that. And by having that actor play that part, it put us in the uncomfortable position of being forced to either actually consider Odo as a bad person um, or being forced to consider this guy as just a, just a person who was doing a bad thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it also, I mean, Deep Space Nine obviously engages on matters of war and um, peace talks and <laughs> yeah, God, all, all and sorts terrorism of and <laughs> Ter yep, terrorism. Are you a terrorist? Or are you a freedom fighter? Collaboration, yeah. not in the fun sort of two writers get together and have a giggle kind of way, but in the, <laughs> in the oh, okay, someone of my species is working with the Cardassians. Obviously, they're a collaborator. If they die in this bombing, they die. This is yeah. the game, mental game I must play in order to keep doing what I'm doing. So, yeah, some really hard-hitting type stuff. Yeah. It's no wonder that, you know, the guy then went on to do Battlestar Galactica later on. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I put Dune down, but mostly I put Dune down not because I think it's a shining example of how not to be preachy about morality, but because it doesn't really have any. <laughs> Everybody is going to. Everyone doesn't kind of, really have any. It's just completely groundless, <laughs> no moral <laughs> basis at all. Well, I mean, it's like you look at all these different organisations and. You've got the the empire itself, which is clearly corrupt. You've got the noble houses, which are jostling for position. And, you know, House Atreides does deal with honour to a certain extent. But it might have been better for them to have retreated and become insignificant rather than to take on Arrakis, the desert planet, um, and then, you know, try and turn the Fremen into an army. Which is it's obviously what Paul then does eventually, yeah, um, and start you know <laughs> galaxy wide jihad. <laughs> yes, you can't say that anybody in those books is really the good guy. No, um, I, so um, well, I won't. I'll, I'll jump to jump into my my next example um, of this. Uh, but I think it is something that that is actually done quite well in in a lot in a fair bit of sci-fi and high fantasy. Um, you get the chance to kind of explore some of these sorts of issues, definitely, and the nuance of it. Yeah, I mean, if you ever find yourself just saying, "Oh, it's all one way," or everybody must believe this, I think also if it's you've got the main character who kind of like it must be this way, I believe this, but everybody else doesn't. That's another way where it can seem a bit preachy, particularly if it's first person. Yeah. It's like the one clear voice in the wilderness, and yeah, everyone who's read any sci-fi or fantasy starts rolling their eyes kind of thing. <laughs> but it's, well, it's also kind of Game of Thrones, isn't it? Well, that's exactly the example I was going to give. Um, with the books of Game of Thrones, I felt like George R. R. Martin really touched on something, which is that you have this overall conflict. And for the most part, we can get behind the Starks. Uh, you know, we're introduced to them first. Um, but it would be very, very easy to to reread the Starks as the bad guys if we hadn't been introduced to them first. Ultimately, we like the Starks because we f- we think Nedard Stark is an honourable man. Yeah. And he is an honourable man. He's a he's a man you can trust. This is a, a, a family who, who, who just all seem quite nice. They are relatable in that way. Um, but, you know, they also have their bad parts. Um, and depending on the perspective that you sort of you re- you see the story from um that they, they could actually be the bad guys and what was interesting for me is that and i hated book five i really hated book five because it got to a certain point where i just didn't know who the hell anyone was anymore um, and I was confused and annoyed and I just wanted to get back to the main story. But it was interesting in that we were suddenly being faced with a whole bunch of other characters or less liked characters and being forced to, to see things from their point of view, um, such as Cersei, starting to understand where Cersei is coming from. And I think in the series, the actress who played Cersei is obviously absolutely phenomenal. And she managed to sort of insert some of that vulnerability um, and kind of give that idea of some of the things that Cersei does go through. It doesn't make her forgivable in any shape, you know, in any sense of the word. She's an incredibly awful person. But 
it made her a really nuanced character. Yeah. yeah and, and everyone suddenly went from hating Jamie to suddenly going, actually, Jamie isn't that bad. Um, but he is kind of bad. It's the same with Clegane. Clegane is arguably a terrible person. <laughs> and then you can't... I mean, the, f- the first real encounter you get with Gregor Clegane is the fact that... This, do I mean Gregor or Sandor? Sandor Clegane, the dog, the hound. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. yeah so, uh, ki- Sandor Clegane, yeah. Yeah, is is him killing the um the butcher's boy. The butcher's boy, yeah. So you get it from Arya's very childlike black and white perspective of this is my friend. He struck the prince who was bullying us. Yeah. Ergo, you know he didn't deserve. Oh, you know I I struck him. The, the peasant boy didn't deserve to die, and you know that's true. Yeah. Except that he was also just doing a job. Yes. Um, which you know unfortunately meant murdering a child yeah and he didn't have any qualms about that to be fair yeah, yeah um, it doesn't make him a particularly lovable person no, does it but he's not particularly lovable by any stretch of the imagination um but yeah one of the interesting things was i uh traveling with him and seeing her point of view where she keeps you know, thinking like, well, I can kill him in his sleep, I can kill him now. And in the end, she can't kill him. She just walks away from him because she's actually started to like him. And that's that's a problem. And she kind of justifies it in her own head like, it's worse if I just leave him here to die. Um, but realistically, you know that's not what's actually going on in her head. What's going on in her head is that she has... She doesn't like the fact that she's been forced to question things. Yeah. Um, anyway, our final example, I'm going to skip one, um, is Spinning Silver, which is one we can both yeah. get on board with. Again, you can't pull any genuine thread of morality out of that, which I think is a good thing. Yes, I agree. Um, and yet at the same time, it really does touch on some very vital um, ideas, I yeah. think. Yeah, definitely. Um, not least, I think it... it um, the way that it sort of touches on how communities or people come together um, when they are alone and afraid um, and why people behave in the way that they behave, I think that's done very, very well. Um, yeah. And, you know, what is owed must be paid one way or another. The debt will come due. Yeah. I, I did love the way that they completely flipped the money lender story. Yes. And went, okay, but, but let's actually look at this. What is it to be a moneylender? Because we, even in this day and age, we tend to think, oh, you know, what a moneylender, etc., X, Y, Z, therefore they're all evil. Um, and I liked the way that she, it, it was sort of turned on its head there and we, we kind of had to consider the other side of it. Not, not also, very importantly, because it had very real-life consequences Um with regards to anti-Semitism. Um, yeah. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. But you're right, it doesn't feel preachy at any point, I don't think. No, I don't think so. It's kind of like, I feel like Naomi Novak always like lays things out like a banquet and then you can eat what you want kind of thing. <laughs> it's a great way of... The, the thing is that when you say she lays things out like a banquet, I just get this image of her head where she just lays it out and then goes, and then flees and runs off and just... 
<laughs> leaves you to form your own opinions. Yeah, and I think that's what the best authors do is yeah. just sort of lay, lay, lay everything out and you pick up what you want to pick up kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so are we ever tempted to preach in our own work? Um, I think we inevitably, we, we will have done at some point. We will certainly have been tempted, I think. This is what a good beta reader will do. They will hopefully pull you up and say, you've laid that on a bit thick. Yes. Um, and I think you. I think everybody does it at least once, particularly when you're starting out. You just, it happens. Um, but as you say, a good beta reader will make a big difference when it comes to catching those kinds of things. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, we do have to also consider that, as has always been the case, um, fiction is a vehicle for important conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if there's something that you want to address, I mean, uh, going back to I belong to the earth where I'm very definitely looking at the concept of does everyone deserve some form of redemption? Does anyone, you know, in its most fundamental level, does anyone really deserve hell? Mm. And the conclusion M comes to at the end of the book is that it's not for her to say. Yeah. Um, it, you know, harm must not be allowed to continue to be perpetuated. So something must be done to stop people who would perpetuate harm. But at the same time, it's also not really her job to punish people. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think I got any preacher than that in that one. <laughs> but, and, and yeah, I, I would say genuinely that is how I personally feel most mm. of the time. Depends how angry you've made me, but <laughs> no, all joking aside, um, yeah, I, I don't feel that, you know, eternal damnation is, is something that should really be a thing, but I'm also not going to, like, crap all over somebody else's religious beliefs either. Mm, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, obviously, I I addressed, I've addressed certain ideas in um, The Sons of Thestian. One in particular I did, obviously, and I've mentioned it before, was that Jonathan, in the first book is homophobic and he's homophobic very simply because he is a product of his upbringing um, and he's just um, he's kind of echoing what he's been taught and what he's learned um, and when he he I use I have used him and I was 17 at the time um, to basically kind of put forward that argument that show that unease which is again him being a product of his upbringing and that being challenged and showing yeah. the process of him being like oh I had never thought of it that way and again that came very much from my own perspective and my own situation having gone to missionary school having been to uh, Christian schools having been raised in quite religious countries and and in a relatively religious sort of background um, these were the thoughts that I were echoing because that was what was being presented to me and when the argument uh, the argument was given to me um, 
I was forced to readdress it and rethink it. And that's what I wanted to do with Jonathan. So I didn't think I was preaching so much as putting down some of my own experience. But I can definitely see how someone might be like, okay, all right, you're just kind of laying it in a bit thick. <laughs> yeah, see, I don't necessarily think so because I think if it had been a case of, yes, that happened on every other chapter or something. Yeah. Then, yeah, maybe. But it wasn't like it was a major, major theme. It was just kind of like he had that, oh, knee-jerk reaction and, oh, my knee-jerk reaction might be wrong. Yeah. Um, my favourite thing about it is that it's just him very slowly coming to realise that, that Rufus is, isn't straight. Because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's totally inconceivable to him, for, for him to begin with. And then once he started to conceive of the idea, he started to look at Rufus and be like, hang on a second. <laughs> but you seem so normal. Well, yeah. you know, actually, if you're looking at Rufus and going, you seem so normal, then he's obviously... Yeah, you... <laughs> Slightly, slightly off the reservation. He's, he's not. Um, he's not seeing the same person everyone else is. Yeah. Rufus is many things, but um, normal is is definitely not one of those. Um, one of those things. A state to which he cannot aspire. No. <laughs> Poor lamb. He's trying. Uh. So yeah. Um, but uh, we continue to develop as writers and sometimes we are unconscious of these things and that is, as Jill said, where a beta reader will come very much in handy. Definitely. Well, we are at the end of our episode now, but before we go, I do have a Dissecting Dragons recommendation for you. Um... And this week, I would like to recommend a series which is on Netflix uh, called Heartstopper. Now, some of you might have heard of this series before, um, and it's um, based on a graphic novel uh, by an author whose name is, that's it, Alice Osman, I believe that's how it's pronounced. Um, and they did this um, adaptation, and it is probably one of the best adaptations of any series that I've ever seen. And I say best adaptation in terms of they have somehow cast it perfectly, where you the characters really look and act and seem like the characters, the whole tone, they've, they've captured it absolutely perfectly. Um, they the plot is a little bit different in places. They've got certain things in different sequences, um, but the whole charm and the character has been so perfectly captured that it is a genuine joy to watch. Um, the series revolves around um, a set of teenage boys. Um, they are uh, 15 and 16 years old. Um, and one of them is uh, ha it ha was outed as gay in his school the previous year, um, and the other one slowly starts to fall in love with him and starts to realise that he might not be straight as well. 
I won't spoil any more than that. Um, but it really looks in a very, very cute way, in a very sort of sort of magical realism way. It looks looks at the experience of self-discovery, identity, sexuality, um, sort of in a school setting, and it is like a sort of a, a, a straight cis um, school romance, but gay. Uh, and it's fresh and lovely and it talks about homosexuality without it just being a everything is awful and there's no point living kind of thing, which is what a lot of gay fiction sometimes does. So it's a breath of fresh air. It's really lovely and cute to watch and I highly recommend watching the series or checking out the graphic novels. Okay. I think you've now officially recommended the graphic novels and the Yes. <laughs> several occasions, so yeah. I do apologise. <laughs> big that... tick from Madeline. <laughs> <laughs> big, it is. It's a huge tick. I really, really enjoy it. And on that note, guys, I'll say, I say, I'll say, just me. <laughs> Jules is not included in this. Hello. <laughs> and on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah. Thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.